You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to the Switched On Australia podcast. I'm Anne Delaney. Thanks for joining me. And I'd like to start today by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Arakwal people from the Bundjalung Nation in northern New South Wales. This is a country that was never ceded. Last week on the podcast, my guest was someone with a vision of what clean energy technology can do for our homes and what the smart all-electric home of the future might look like if we adopt the innovative tech that's currently being developed. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that interview with Raghu Balor from Enphase, it's definitely worth checking out. Today, though, my guest is someone with a more circumspect view on some of the energy technology being developed for the home. Dr. Hedda Ransan-Cooper is a social science researcher and a senior research fellow at the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program at ANU, where she researches attitudes and experiences of domestic energy products and services. How householders view new smart energy technology will influence how and whether we'll use it. So it's in everyone's interest to understand these attitudes if we want everything and everyone to electrify. I started my discussion with Hedda Ransan-Cooper by asking her what we know about how to move a population off one energy technology and on to another. We have a pretty good sense now about what we need to move people from one technology type sort of en masse to another. Mm. So, you know, we've got this really great information and knowledge base now about what it is that we need. Really important to sort of get across that before we dive into electrification. And so what are the fundamentals? What do we need? Well, the fundamentals are really that people really need and appreciate tailored advice. So giving people um, a fact sheet that provides sort of generic advice is not all that helpful because people's circumstances are all so different. Mm. You know, the the size of their house, the size of their household, the kind of the climate, depending on different states, the different kind of rebates that are on offer, the different um, uses that, that people want and expect, you know, whether you've got pets or elderly people in the home or you know, just different circumstances. Everybody's circumstances are different. So one of the things that I see time and time again is that need for somebody to really talk through the different options, but in conversation. So not putting one-way information out there, not just providing fact sheets or webinars, which can be helpful. There's, there's a role for that because mm. that gives people a bit of a sense of kind of what's what's available and what's around. But this whole issue of things being tailored is really important. And then I guess the next dimension is that that information and that conversation happens where there's a trust in the relationship. So people are fairly aware of the need to be careful these days. You know, we talk a lot about scams and certainly we've seen in the solar industry some some not mm. great tactics around pressure sales tactics and door-to-door, you know, sales. And 
So especially in energy. We call it crap solar. Yeah, crap solar, that's right. Yeah, it's real. It's a real shame and it's I really, my heart goes out to the, the really good providers and the really good installers who work so hard to give people a good experience. And what we know from that good experience is that one, people, the, the, the tradies have the training um, and the expertise to, to deliver the service, but also that they take the time to talk through and, and understand the householder's perspective so that they're not selling them a system that is, you know, not fit for purpose for that particular Householder. So that that's if it has to be individually tailored and there has to be a dialogue, a two-way process. That's a massive task, isn't it, Heather? Mm-hmm. How are we going? Yeah. How are we going on that task? <laughs> well, I think it's really it's really variable across jurisdictions, but I think we've not seen the level of investment that we need, and that's sort of a reflection of our energy system governance and and how it's you know we made this decision to privatize and and that leaves very few resources for for state governments to do that work governments are a little bit stuck between a hard rock and a hard place in that sense because the energy system has been privatized so you've got these big companies that they're the ones that are kind of dealing in the energy space they're the ones that, that have got the revenue um, and they're not necessarily incentivized to to help householders to to reduce their energy bills they want people to to keep consuming energy obviously so that that, that trust issue seems to be really important so because pri- private companies have a vested interest as you say how do we go yeah. about dealing with that if we are going to try and get everybody to electrify when so much of the energy industry and system is is controlled by very vested interests? Yeah, look, that's a really big question. I think it's, for me, I try to break it down into something that's tangible and sort of bite-sized so that for me, I can start to kind of grapple with that question. Um, So yeah, there's sort of that big picture question about the energy system and the way it's governed and the fact that we've privatised and corporatised and that makes it very difficult to kind of reinvest back into into people and into the system and there's a lot of good that's come out of um, studies into things like energy efficiency and you know we've, we've done research now in that space for quite a while and 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 retrofits and and how do we go about about doing that um, and like I said those kind of issues around around trust and around tailored advice you know come into play really strongly um, with that with that research so it's kind of about having sort of local shop fronts really and and mm. and and people that are willing to kind of go to people's homes and do a, a home energy audit and talk through with people and follow up you know not just kind of a one-off but sort of follow up and and there's a lot of inertia we all know that, that that can happen, that, you know, some of the people that we're trying to target are people that are very, like you said before, there's the kind of low-hanging fruit, the people who are really well-educated, who are really literate on these issues, who have the money to do that. Um, but that really represents a pretty small fraction of Australian society. So if we're trying to roll this out at scale, we need to overcome the inertia that is in place where um, people are busy. And and so that's that thing where like having economic incentives and rebates really does help. Like it makes obviously a very big difference, but on its own, it's not enough because of that sort of inertia that where, you know, life is busy, 
I'm sure you've already covered the kind of economic side of things there, like the cost of living pressures that people are under, which is sort of why I'm focusing a little bit more on the the sort of social dimension, but that that relationship between people and the provider of whatever it is that service is is really important because it you know it can become really easily overwhelming you've got you get go out and get get a bunch of quotes and then you don't really know how to interpret them like what, mm. what does it mean there's a real information asymmetry there between everyday people who don't have an engineering background necessarily yeah. and the installers or the retailers who you hope have that they do have that training and that background but there's still a lot to navigate there for people trying to work out well, what, which quote, what does this mean? What is this quote saying and, and how do I interpret that? It's not only the information that is being presented to them, which isn't necessarily in a form that people can readily yeah. appreciate it. It strikes me there's a whole lot of other forces as well. When I think about how I accept certain technology and I don't accept certain technology there's the whole my own personal history of how I've dealt with technology in the past and whether or not I've been confident about certain things Mm -hmm. so it feels like there are a whole lot of other other impacts as well as the information that we actually get about electrification well that's right I mean the technology has to be has to fit into people's homes and and people's routines. And sometimes, you know, when you've got engineers working on energy technologies, you know, they can can make things overly complex. And, you know, we've seen in the last sort of decade or so, a lot of people presenting and and marketing these really sophisticated, smart Mm. home technologies. And when we've gone out and just done research with people about whether or not these technologies fit into their homes. You know, often it's just too complicated. It's just too people kind of revert back to the simple timer that they can they can easily just sort of fit it into their routine. But sometimes, you know, we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing some of these technologies, some of these things like home energy management systems that, you know, might be fantastic for the person who's got an IT background and can uh, I have interviewed people who have sort of managed to optimise and, and fine-tune their own <laughs> um, battery management system or whatever, but that is represents a tiny, tiny proportion of, of the Australian population and a lot of these trials and these sort of smart devices just show that a lot of people never get around to downloading the app or it doesn't, you know, might even increase the energy use or, right. you know, there's all this digital housekeeping that's required to kind of mind, maintain it. And um, so, you know, simple, as simple as good. Yes, <laughs> yes, because these systems, the, particularly the home, the smart controls, the, the, the smart home energy management systems, mm. energy management systems, mm. I mean, they're being sold as this is the, going to be the house of the, the future. And and by that, I mean, these systems are supposed to be able to control when my EV gets charged, when I Mm. sell solar back to the grid, for instance. Mm. And it's all supposed to be done seamlessly and simply. What you're saying is that it's not as simple as a lot of, I suppose, as the marketers are are actually making out. No, and it's a bit it's a bit of a shame. We've been distracted a bit by that that shiny new technology because I think the thing to remember is that when it's designed, it's designed to think about 
responding to price signals and responding to what the system needs. Mm. But what decades of energy research has shown is that what's the most important thing is is people's routines and the way that people use energy is quite inflexible, actually. And people want to be able to control what people are not sort of sitting there being micro entrepreneurs in their in their own home they're they're caring for pets they're caring for children they're caring for each other they're using energy when they need to and there's there's probably some flexibility here and there among some people but this idea that um, yeah technology is going to kind of erase all of that complex everyday you know life that happens in the home to just make it so that it's it's flexible for the system like that that's really a pipe dream there's really no evidence that shows that that has either worked or that that's what that's the way that people want to engage in the energy system is it a case though of of, uh, i don't know teething problems with new technology new energy technology and that when people have been able to embed it in their own lives that they will be able to manage things better in the way that they need? Because surely there must be a process of adopting and, and engaging with new technology. Look, I think so. But I think when we think about the, the technologies that are most sort of enduring, they're things that are really kind of familiar to people and that where there's a lot of flexibility around how they can use that technology. Mm. And so... If anything that sort of takes away control and agency and flexibility is just something that's not going to work, you know, like there's just, it's just the complexity of people's lives. You know, there's a few characteristics around the way that people want to engage in energy that are really enduring across time and, and space. And that's things like comfort, that's things like convenience, that's things like care. Mm. and control so there's a lot of c words there and then obviously there's kind of those bigger picture values that come into play with um, people's rationales behind sort of buying rooftop solar and, and evs which is care for for the environment care for future generations those sort of values come in as well but the reality is is that people know their own routines they know when they want to go on a long trip or they know when they're going to have people around and they might be using more energy at that point people know their own routines best and routines are always you know to some extent changing in the sense there's the kind of stable routines like sort of going to work and going to school and some stable sort of ways that we we live our lives but then there's always sort of little mini changes all the time as well and people want to be able to have control like there's some just like wonderful kind of quotes that come through in our research where people are like well I don't want my coffee machine to sort of deliver me a a coffee at 3 p.m every day because what if today I feel like a hot chocolate (laughs) or you know cup of tea or so yeah I think any technology that takes away people's control over everyday routines is just not going to work. I just want to drill down actually into some of the attitudes towards these smart controls, the home energy management systems, because there does seem to be a lot pegged on these systems being able to Mm. take us into the future. I mean, what you're suggesting is that the, the distrust that people already have of the energy system for 
sometimes very good reasons because let's face it utilities have been ripping us off for years um <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's certainly a common refrain from, from people that i talk to yes yeah i mean some of that distrust is is actually going to move across to some of these new technologies um and until we address that that issue we're not going to get very far yeah i think that's exactly right like there is that sense that the energy market is so complicated, even people inside the system, you know, struggle to understand, you know, all the dimensions to it, let alone people that are not kind of en energy insiders. And so their sort of everyday experience of the energy market is that it's, you know, that it's uncertain, that prices have been going up, you know, whereas we were promised prices would come would come down. Um, people have issues all the time with their bill and billing issues and, and so on. So I know a lot of people inside energy kind of go, well, look, we're, we're delivering this service and most of the time it's working really well. And I empathise with that perspective, but I think for me, I'm the one that sort of talks to everyday householders in my line of work. Um, and from their perspective, it's sort of not good enough. The system has not delivered on the values that, that it's promised. And I think that's an important part of trust, isn't it? Like trust, you know, between you and I, if I say I'm going to do something and then I don't do it, then that's obviously going <laughs> to, you're not going to trust me in the same way. And I think that's that's the problem is that the energy system promised all of these things and it hasn't kept sort of up to date with changing expectations around the existential crisis that we face with climate change. People rightly believe that the energy system should be, you know, should be decarbonising. They're not seeing that happening fast enough. So there's lots of different elements of the distrust that people experience. But I think mm. the inherent kind of complexity and opacity, I suppose, like it's very difficult to understand your bill. It's very difficult to understand the energy market. And when people don't understand something, then also that's a really fertile ground for distrust as well. So I think we're going to see that distrust play out with things like technologies like um, virtual power plants where we're asking householders to kind of sell their battery energy into the into the energy market via an aggregator. People are, are going to really struggle with that one because of that element of, of kind of distrust of the market and of and of the profit motive that's sort of inherent. It's sort of a fundamental assumption right behind the way that the energy system is governed is that efficiency will, you know, will prevail because people are companies are making rational decisions around to make a profit. Um, but that's not what people's everyday experiences suggest is happening. Mm. Um, and so people are very sceptical of the profit motive in energy as well. I mean, I think the other thing to bring in there too around the issue with distrust is that people sort of bring in other experiences that are not just about energy. So it could be issues to do with sort of privacy of data, where they've seen data breaches or, um, you know, they're feeling like they're being surveilled by companies like Meta, Facebook and so on. So I think that's the other thing that sometimes we forget in energy is that when people are looking at these technologies, they're not just thinking about it in an energy sense, they're bringing in experience of infrastructure rollout. Like they'll talk about, they'll reference the NBN rollout and how, what a disaster that was that'll play into this the distrust as well. So they'll bring in, you know, concerns about privacy peak breaches from other areas. So there's a lot of complexity and a lot of layers behind the, the mistrust. And I certainly, um, you know, would encourage anybody 
you know, who's interested in that to kind of not take it for granted or not think that it's a trivial problem because I think it's actually a really kind of significant one. I think the the issue of um, data, you know, when you lose your, your data, your information, et cetera, and privacy controls, I think that's that's massive, surely, when it comes to what we are now going to be expected to do to fully electrify. Yeah, and look, people can sort of come up with like, look at all these safeguards that we're coming in and putting in and so on. But what we've learned from perceptions of risk in lots of other areas of technology, whether that's sort of coal seam gas and people's concerns about the kind of integrity of water, groundwater resources, Sometimes it doesn't matter if you just say, look, we've done all the studies, we've put in all the safeguards, or, you know, we, we see this with nuclear as well, right? That people's threshold of risk tolerance can be just really low if they see that the consequences are really huge. Mm. So, you know, with coal seam gas, you know, you, you roll out the experts that say, no, it's going to be safe. We, you know, we've done all the testing, we've done all the, but, you know, to a farmer whose livelihood relies on that that water, it doesn't actually matter to them. Any tiniest sliver of risk is is kind of not good enough. And I think that's the same with you're gonna see the same thing sort of playing out with with issues around data. If if the risk is seen as like, well, I'd rather things just stay the same the way they are because I understand that and it's mm. familiar. And this big change, well maybe that risk is just I don't care what studies you're or what assurances you're providing me that, you know, maybe mm. it's just not not going to be good enough for people. But, you know, we've certainly seen resistance to smart meters, you know, globally around the world. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we, we saw that resistance extending to other types of smart technology, home technology in the energy space. So this really raises the, the question of what sort of platforms do we need? What sort of information do we need to to bring people along? I mean, there are certain things that have to be done to try and ensure that issues like privacy and data are safe. I mean, there's the, the actual practical things that have to be done, mm. but it's also the information to reassure people that electrification probably is a good thing. Oh, look, I think it is. It's just about how do you go about doing that you know how do you go about electrifying and i think there's some really good principles and work that's been done by researchers in australia research from our own organization here at bizgip but also from monash university that provides sort of really specific guidance for the industry so i would really encourage anybody to go and go and kind of check that out because the work's been done it's just often the case that I think energy social scientists, there's very few of us. There's not many of us um, in the energy industry. We talk a lot about techno-optimism and sort of hype cycles and that, that sort of people get carried away by, by the latest idea and, and it's sort of like, oh, this is going to solve all of our problems and we're often the ones sort of doing the, the work on the ground with people that sort of asking them, well, what do they want and, and on what terms do you want to engage in the energy system? And that work is there, you know, the work is there. So you just have to go and, and seek it a little bit more and, and ground the conversation in actually what is going to work for people because I think mm. we can waste a lot of time in techno-hype um, and techno-optimism when, you know, there just isn't, the empirical evidence to show that it actually works. 
I would be really sad to see that happening in the electrification space that, you know, we've ignored really good research that's already there about how people want to engage in the energy system. You're listening to the Switched On Australia podcast and today I'm talking to Dr Hedda Ransan-Cooper, who's a social science researcher specialising in energy technology. One of the communication platforms that deals with energy technology, which Hedda has done a case study of, is the Facebook group My Efficient Electric Home. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the group and you can find an interview I did with Tim Forsey, who founded it on the Switched On website. My Efficient Electric Home has over 100,000 members now from all over the country. It's essentially a place for householders to exchange advice about energy efficiency and electrification. The group is also helping people make decisions about what is going to work best for their particular situation. It's also providing people a bit of a sense check or a reality check about what the market is like. So a lot of people go, oh, that's really expensive. And then people will say, well, actually that's a decent price or no you're right that is actually too expensive Mm. people will give their own experiences of kind of what's worked for them so that really helps people kind of make that um, decision and it sort of it sort of showcases kind of what is possible so I think it really inspires people you might kind of go into the group just thinking that you just want some information about insulation but while you're on there you're sort of starting to see that other people are on these other journeys and have changed from gas to to an induction stove and you get to see that journey and so it sort of showcases sort of what's what's possible for people and then when things go wrong um, you know sometimes people are kind of going oh what's happening with my solar output here's a picture of you know what's going on Um, and they'll sort of troubleshoot and, and get ideas about what's going wrong with their particular piece of technology. So, I mean, if I was a sort of a tech designer myself, I would find this group a really fantastic source of information about how to refine <laughs> my product, how to how to improve the design specs so that they actually work for people. And that actually did happen in in Finland with heat pump technology. We, we saw one of the fastest transitions towards heat pump technology because of internet forums. Right. That was one of the key characteristics was that they had to adapt the heat pump technology for for cold weather climates and people's experiences and feedback um, because people are just passive, you know, consumers of technology. People are um, tinkerers. People have experiences and suggestions. It's a really two-way relationship, actually, between people and technology because how do we know that something works? Well, you know, we try it out with people and people will let you know <laughs> mm. if they want this particular feature or that feature's not not helpful and so to accelerate that learning you know something like an internet forum can really be really fantastic and so look there are all the positives um i think some of the negatives are things like well it requires literacy and um, an appetite to be on facebook not everybody wants to be on facebook so it sort of excludes people who have chosen not to have a facebook account um, because that's that's the platform that it's hosted posted on and look we do know that kind of literacy and digital literacy rates are are really you know variable in across Australia so again we probably see that Facebook group is really helpful for people who have relative confidence sort of navigating yeah reading and digesting sort of technical information but it's not going to necessarily be for everybody so I think an internet forum is fantastic and it could be 
you know, we could do some more thinking and more talking to the people involved in the group about how this could be scaled up and what features of it do people really want to keep and, and what what don't they? I think it's fantastic. I really do. But we have to, at the same time, yeah, really remember that it's not for everybody and some people might need, you know, information and support in a different format. One of the things, though, it sounds like from what you're saying that we can really take from it is that people trust people that they know and you know the the nature of those internet forums is you you start to feel like you know other people yeah and you trust other people that don't have a vested interest in in the outcome so there are the the moderators of the group i think very generously allow installers to or or companies to post on there but they have to be very transparent about who they are and what they're doing on how they're contributing to the group but I think you're exactly right people trust other everyday people whose credentials really are I've tried this and it's worked for me or I've tried this and it hasn't worked for me and that that's sort of yeah of course people intuitively trust other consumers and other householders who are going on the same journey that they're on. Mm. One of the other big issues that strikes me is um, when we come to dealing with some of this new energy technology, and I'm, I'm already seeing it in the stories that people are actually pitching to me for our electrification series, they're, they're men, and they're men who mm-hmm. um, are pretty savvy when it comes to mm-hmm. the technology. So I'm starting to wonder, okay, how are women going with this transition? <laughs> is this acceptance of new energy technology. Is there a gendered issue around this? Oh, look, absolutely. Um, there is a gendered issue and there's lots of there's lots of great research specifically on that. But I just love a story that a friend of mine told me about, you know, when he was sort of trying to optimise everything in the house because he, he is an engineer by background and he was sort of trying to optimise this and he was sort of talking about it with his wife, who, by the way, also has an engineering background, but she just, he said to me, her eyes just glazed as soon as I started talking about this. And I thought, yeah, that's right, because when people are in the home, a lot of women in the home space, women are still responsible for the vast majority majority of the caregiving in society. So coming in with that sort of economic or even environmental been sort of dominating the discussion about, well, how do we use energy? Like That's just not going to go down very well with women because they're the ones that, you know, have to do cook when they need to cook or vacuum clean when they can vacuum clean or make the lunches when they need to make the lunches. Mm. And I'm not saying that that, that is all women, no. et cetera, because, but, but we know the research around roles and responsibilities in the home are still pretty, pretty clear that women still do the lion's share. So I think that gender dimension is really important. It's not to say that women can't get their heads around the technology or aren't interested. There are a lot of women that are, but then it all depend on other things like, you know, what else is on that woman's plate and somebody who is very busy working and, and caregiving, you know, maybe doesn't have the time to get their head around, you know, the technical specifications of, of this induction stove versus that induction stove. And certainly I would really, you know, emphasise that it's important to have those conversations together as a family and not just to assume that that one person should be making all the all the decisions on behalf of, of everybody else in the family. But this is where it gets to be really 
you know, interesting because these are decisions and conversations that are happening inside mm. families and that's not typically a space that you don't have policymakers sort of dictating um, those sorts of <laughs> yeah. those sorts of conversations. Thankfully. So, thankfully, you know, that's not appropriate at all. So then you sort of realise that, well, this is a cultural change, this is a social change. These conversations need to be happening with everybody who's affected Obviously, we have division of labour and, and some people who are more across it um, might take the lead, but it's, yeah, it's really important to consult everybody in that conversation as well. So tell me, how far do you think that the energy industry and, and government is aware of really what consumers, householders want and need to be able to make this transition? You're clearly po uh, pointing to a gap. How big is that gap? I think it depends on the specific topic that you're talking about. I think in general, the gap is pretty significant. And I think that's because there's this real orthodoxy that still dominates the energy policy conversation, which is that kind of economics trumps everything and, and cost trumps everything. And obviously, cost is really important. I would, I would never say that it, that it wasn't. There are all sorts of other considerations that come into play when people make decisions about energy technologies and how they want to participate in the in the transition. That's the shift that really needs to happen. That's going to kind of close the gap. Is is for us to kind of just put down, just put aside that orthodoxy and and realize that it was it was for another time with a different understanding. But we're going through a transition now, and we need to understand that things are a lot more complex. And we need to understand that people have multiple motivations, that there are real different capacities to engage. And, you know, when we're thinking about governance and thinking about cost and so on, often there are some really built-in assumptions around that, that everybody is sort of capable. The market's not really good at sort of dealing with the fact that, that there's heterogeneous capacities across the population to engage and... And that's why we find that there's always people that are missing out um, on certain things. And I think <laughs> people in private enterprise will say, well, that, that's government's role to pick that up. But we're in a situation at the moment where government doesn't really see itself as pro providing that role to the same extent that what people want. People want government to take leadership in the energy policy space. They want to sort of see some certainty, some roadmap about where we're going mm. and they're not seeing that and it's it's really frustrating for people because they sort of go, well, we want to see that change, we want to see that direction and unfortunately there's a sort of policy orthodoxy that no, you know, that's up to the market. We, we just sort of set the, the framework and then it's business's job to go and deliver those those services but in a transition and a big transition context where we have something like climate change hanging over us, it's really not fit for purpose for, for where people are up, up to. And I think some political actors understand that and some politicians understand that, but we have a long way to go. So just a final question, just to summarise, I suppose. How hopeful are you, Heather, that we can, <laughs> that we can close that gap? <laughs> Oh, um, I think I'm mixed. I think what I would really like to see is civil society really engaging with broader debates that are happening 
around the kind of future that we want to live in, not just thinking about energy in very narrow terms, but thinking about how energy use connects to consumption and care and the kind of world that we want to live in. And, you know, there's lots of conversations happening, you know, around around degrowth or around just alternative models of, of economics and, and living. And I'd, I'd really like to see the energy sort of sector thinking about connecting to that and pushing the envelope a little bit on the kind of conversation that we're having, not, not just to take those things sort of for granted because people are ready really ready to have those conversations there's real appetite to kind of think about doing things differently um that's sort of what i hear in in the interviews and focus groups you know that i do my hope is that governments can respond to people's concerns and people's expectations and and start to sort of reimagine a different role for themselves in Mm. in the transition And I think, you know, we have seen that with the large-scale renewables where government has said, yep, we realise that we've got to do the hard work of negotiating all of the trade-offs and the complexities around large-scale renewables when when we're talking about sort of the renewable energy zones and, and they've really kind of seen a role for themselves and and you know, there's there's nobody out there saying, <laughs> oh, you know, that's a bad thing, right? Like in terms of everyday Australians, they're like, yes, that's that's what we want to see. And so, I think we just haven't got to that place with this electrification and home decarbonisation space where there really is a role for government. Mm-hmm. But it's going to take it's going to take a change in imagination and a change of orthodoxy to kind of realise that there's a role there. And and people are already there. The public is already there wanting to see them step up. Yeah, I think there's a way to go for them to, to sort of see that role for themselves. Lots to do, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Heather Ranson-Cooper, thank you so much for joining the Switched On podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. Really enjoyed our conversation. And Hedda Ransan-Cooper is a Senior Research Fellow at the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program at ANU. That's a wrap for Switched On this week. Don't forget to check out some of our previous podcast episodes. Professor Peter Newman on how electric transport can help us build healthier, better cities. Jan Rosenau on why heat pumps are the most efficient heating technology we've ever created. Merrilee Hunter, who runs a one-stop shop that helps households navigate electrification, and how the town of Esperance in WA transitioned off gas in just 12 months with Stephanie Unwin. That's just to name a few of them. Now, I hope you can join me next time when we take another deep dive into the electrification of everything. I'm Anne Delaney. See you then. Switched on.